as he preaches from your word and cause us, the congregation, to marvel even more at your awesome works as we hear and read about them from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Sam. Well, good morning, everyone. Nice to see all of you. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119. If you do not have a Bible, we would love to get one to you. Please raise your hand high. Bill Ritchie in the back will get you a Bible. Um, If you do not have one, consider that a gift from FCF to you. When I told my dad that I was preaching through Psalm 119 and they asked me to, to preach, he said only you would pick the longest chapter in the Bible to preach from. Um, But I wanted to start off this sermon with a very, very pointed question. Do you love the Bible? Now that might seem like a ridiculous question to ask in church. This is a church where people about the book. But it seems to me, Christians will often say, I love the Bible, I value scripture, but often they don't let it inform their lives, when things get difficult, things get hard, things get confusing, they often turn to personal experience, human wisdom, pragmatism, what works, to inform their decisions. While those three things aren't entirely bad in and of themselves, they become bad when they're not put to the test by the scriptures. The Bible should inform the way that you and I view our lives and the world around us. So for the next, for this week and the next two weeks, we're going to do a three-part series on Psalm 119. And my goal for our church body is one point of application, and you'll hear me repeat it throughout the sermon and the next two sermons. The question is this, do you have the same attitude about the Bible that the author does? Are you as captivated by scripture as the writer of Psalm 119? His whole life centers around the Bible. He prays over and over again that his knowledge and understanding of God's word would become more rich. And he is so captivated by this word that his whole life is different. His affections are for the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in the scriptures. After spending much time reading through this psalm, I think that it's safe to say this is probably one of the greatest literary achievements ever written. And we'll spend some time looking at why. This psalm has such depth and beauty, it's an incredible feat of poetry in and of itself. But more than that, this psalm is in the Bible. It's something that's completely true, wonderful, and beneficial for our lives as Christians. So look with me at Psalm 119. We'll read the first three verses, pray, and then we will look at how this psalm is laid out. Psalm 119, verse 1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. This is God's word. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we ask that we would adopt the attitude of the Bible that the author of this psalm has. We ask that you would continually help us love the scriptures more than anything else in our lives. That we would value the opinions of scripture more than the opinions of ourselves. And Lord, let the Holy Spirit speak through me this morning. 
Comfort those that are disturbed and disturb those that are comforted. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So I said a few moments ago that this psalm is probably one of the greatest literary achievements ever composed. I think there are at least four reasons for this. First, this psalm is structured in what's called an acrostic. I was uh, a music education major in college, and we learned an acrostic for the word fail, first attempt in learning. Psalm 119 goes through every letter of the Hebrew Bible, or rather the Hebrew alphabet, 22 of them, eight times. And our versification follows that pattern. So verse 1 would be letter A, verse 2 would be letter A in our English alphabet, all the way down through verse 8, then verse 9 switches to B and goes down through eight verses, 22 letters, 176 verses in Psalm 119. Second, this psalm uses eight words to describe the Bible. These eight words in my ESV are translated as this, law, testimonies, precepts, statutes, commands, rules, word, and promise. Let me say that again. These eight rule, uh, rather eight words are law, testimonies, precepts, statutes, commands, rules, word, and promise. If you count all eight of these words and how many times they're used throughout the psalm, it ends up being 176 times. So there are eight repetitions of each letter in the acrostic and eight words that describe the Bible, 176 verses in this psalm, and the words that describe the Bible are 176 times. That's just amazing to me. Third, the psalms seem to move thematically across two letters of the acrostic. So I think A and B are intimately connected to each other, and C and D, and so the psalm goes on. Fourth, I think this psalm is organized in what is called a chiastic structure. Chiastic structures occur all over the Bible, and they are essentially a mirrored symmetry. The first part of the psalm corresponds to the last part of the psalm. The second part of the psalm corresponds to the second to last, and it all moves toward a center. So here's a chart that shows the chiastic motion of this psalm. There's a programmatic opening in verses 1 through 16 and what's called the theme and hermeneutical horizon. That's just fancy talk to say this is what this psalm is going to be about. The first 16 verses provide the framework by which we read the rest of the psalm. Then in verses 17 through 48, we have a lament or a cry for help, petition, and trust. And then we move further into the psalm where the psalmist is thinking about his own life negatively in verses 49 through 80. Then we have the dramatic center of the psalm, which proclaims God's all-powerful work in the world. And that's verses 81 through 96. Moving back across our chiastic structure, we have a positive retrospection in verses 97 through 128. A petition, lament, and more petition in verses 129 through 160. And then at the end, we get a programmatic summary where there is an assurance of salvation and praise for God and his word. So that's how this psalm is laid out. And the reason I'm sharing this with you this morning is because this is how we are going to structure the next three um, weeks of our time together in Psalm 119. So today we're going to look at the two A's and the D in the middle. And then we're going to look at the two B sections next week. And then Lord willing, on our last week in Psalm 119, we'll look at the C section. Now, why is all this important? Why does it matter that there's a chiastic structure? that there's 176 verses, that there's an acrostic. Why is this important for you to know? 
I think the author is making a theological point about what he's writing. And here it is. The beauty of the Bible transcends human language. The beauty of the scriptures transcends anything that we can describe or write down. Every Hebrew letter is gone over eight times, but that is not sufficient to declare the majesty and beauty of the Bible. Each theme is repeated twice according to our chiastic pattern, but that is not sufficient either. There are eight different words to describe the Bible, but that's not sufficient either. Each of those eight words is repeated 176 times, but once again, that is not sufficient. The Bible's beauty cannot be contained in human words and transcends the most beautiful forms of poetry. The Word of God transcends human language. If you took any verse of this psalm, flipped to any random spot and read it, you would see that the primary focus of this psalm is someone that is saturated with the scriptures. Their whole life is filled with an awe for the Bible and a desire to follow it. Following our chiastic structure, today we're going to look at verses 1 through 16, 81 through 96, and 161 through 176. So this brings us to our main point. Bible-saturated people find blessing in God's word, are trusting in God's word, and are exulting in God's word. Let me say that again. Bible-saturated people find blessing in God's word, are trusting in God's word, and are exulting in God's word. When we read the Bible, we find that it is our ultimate blessing. When we read the Bible, we trust in it above anything else in your life. When we read the Bible, we praise and worship God for his awesome work. So let's move to our first main point. Bible-saturated people find blessing in God's word. And this comes from verses 1 through 16. Let's read that together this morning. Psalm 119, verses 1 through 16. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Verse 5. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I will not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart. When I learn your righteous rules, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. and the ways of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. So like I said in the intro, verses 1 through 8 and 9 through 16 are two different sections of the acrostic, but I think they function as a thematic unit together. The words heart, keep, 
and way are particularly connected and concentrated in these verses. So if you look at your Bible with me, the word way is used in verse 1, verse 3, verse 5, 9, and 15. Verse 1, verse 3, verse 5, 9, and 15. The word heart is used in verses 2, 7, 10, and 11. 2, 7, 10, 11. Lastly, the word keep is used in verse 2, 4, 5, 8, and 9. 2, 4, 5, 8, and 9. These connections are most clear in verses 7 through 10. Look there with me in your Bibles. He says, I will praise you with an upright heart. Then he says in verse 8, I will keep your statutes. Then it's in verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? Verse 10, with my whole heart. So you have heart, keep, keep, and heart again. So there's another type of chiastic pattern there. So let's look at um, verses 1 through 4 this morning. They seem to primarily focus on blessing from living God's word. Verses 1 through 4 focus primarily on blessing from living God's word. That's why I titled this sermon, Living the High Life. It is a blessed lifestyle to live God's word. But before we step any further, we need to talk about a common misconception about the word blessed. When we hear that word, we typically think material possessions and lots of money. But that's not always what the Bible means when it refers to the word bless. This passage is not saying that if you follow the Bible, that you will have um, lots of money and lots of material possessions. The word blessed is more about a heart attitude than a physical possession. The word could also be translated happy or delighted. And this is to say that those who follow the Bible, who study it day and night, who desire to look more and more like Jesus, their heart attitude is happy, content. That's what this psalm is saying. Now, these blessed people are ones that do five things. It says their way is blameless. They walk in the law of the Lord. They keep his testimonies. They seek him with their whole heart, and they do no wrong by walking in his ways. Essentially, they live out God's word. This climaxes in verse 4. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. God designed the Bible to be enjoyed, yes, but also to be followed. God's word needs to be followed. We'll see some wisdom on how to do this in verses 9 through 12, but this is the idealized goal. We want to be like the blessed one. And if you're not, reading through all of Psalm 119 is designed to make you desire to be this blessed one. We see that the ultimate ideal is to follow God's word and God's way. And God's word teaches us how to promote human flourishing. This is what I think the goal of this psalm is. And when you finish Psalm 119, I hope and pray that you will adopt the attitude that God's law is blessing. Now we move to verses 5 through 8. And this section focuses primarily on a desire to keep God's word. The author sees verses 1 through 4 as the ideal, and verses 5 through 8 show us that he says, I'm far from perfect. Look at verse 5. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. He's praying over himself that he would desire to follow the Bible more and more. 
He desires above all else to keep God's word, and he realizes that if he follows these commands, then he will not be put to shame. That's what uh, the text says. This shame is to become God's enemy and abandoned by him. Being put to shame is the opposite of being blessed and living the high life. So instead of being blessed, you are essentially cursed and forsaken by God. The answer to how we solve this problem, how can we not be put to shame, is given in verse 6. Having my eyes fixed on your commandments. Is your gaze upon your life or upon the Bible? Is your gaze fixed upon your life or on the Bible? Verses 7 through 8 close with two commitments. I will praise you and I will keep your statutes. We worship and praise God by following what he commands us to do. We praise God and worship him by the lifestyle that we live. When we learn God's rules, that is how we praise him. Worship is not just on Sunday morning. It's Monday through Saturday as well. And it's how you live your life. And it's the attitude you adopt when you interact with the world. Moving on, verses 1 through 4 say the ideal of blessing from living God's word. Verses 5 through 8 show a desire to keep God's word. Now we're left with a question. How? How am I to keep God's word in this way? And the answer is given in verse 9. Look what he says. How can a young man keep his way pure? That's almost like the psalmist knows the questions that are coming before us. How can a young man keep his way pure? This is not just a problem for males between 12 and 25. It's for everybody. We all need to ask this question. How can I keep my way pure before God? What's the answer? In verse 11, I see the clearest statement of a practical command. Look in verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I think this is a command to memorize scripture. Are you struggling with sin this morning? Is there something that you just can't seem to shake in your life? The answer given in Psalm 119 is to store up the word of God in your heart. Memorizing scripture is the path to success in this area. We see the pattern in Jesus' own life in Matthew chapter 4. He quotes scripture, and he quotes from none other than Deuteronomy. I wonder how many verses I even have memorized out of the book of Deuteronomy. So you guard your way according to the Bible through memorizing it. Oftentimes in life, we get ourselves into trouble based on gut reactions. And as a middle school music teacher... I often have gut reactions on how I want to respond to that crazy kid in my class, most of which would get me fired. But when we memorize the Bible, our gut reaction changes. When we fill our heads with the scriptures, it's almost like the Holy Spirit is saying, this verse will work for you. And so you're banking on all of these verses. Andy Nacelli, in his book on interpreting the New Testament, has a section on memorizing a book of the Bible. Not a verse, a whole book. He gives several reasons why, and here's my favorite one. He says, memorizing makes God's word more precious to you. After you spend hundreds of hours of a portion, in a portion of the Bible, it becomes even sweeter to you. Memorizing it helps you treasure it. 
Verse 12 then is an eruption of prayer. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. It is only through God's divine work that we can fully grasp and understand the Bible. So when you read the Bible, do you ask God to teach you? Or are you thinking, what can I impose on the Bible? Do you pray that God would give you more and more understanding of the scriptures? Or is our prayer life too focused on the world around us? Verses 13 through 16 close this unit with an eruption of rejoicing in God's word. So we moved from blessing, from living God's word, to a desire to keep God's word. Then we have wisdom for keeping God's word. And lastly, we are rejoicing in God's word. Look with me at uh, verses 13 through 16. It says, with my lips I declare praise. I delight as much as all riches. And I think verse 13 implies that he is actually reciting the verses that he memorized over his own life. He loves the Bible so much that material possessions and wealth cannot compare to the value he sees and the knowledge that he can gain through reading the Bible every day. So I have to ask, do you love the Bible as much as this man does? And verses 15 through 16 close with similar types of commitments as before. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. He will learn the scriptures. He will memorize the Bible. And he will delight in them. So how do you find blessing in God's word? By loving it and by living it. By desiring it and by doing it. By treasuring it and being transformed by it. We find value and blessing in God's word by treasuring it over great wealth and by committing to do it. So I want you to think about yourself for just a moment. Where are you at in this progression? Are you still stuck in verses 1 through 4? In verses 1 through 4, you think it's not the blessed life to follow God's law. That's not going to be very beneficial. You may be unchurched and only know a few of the rules, like don't lie or steal or murder, but you can't move past, I can't live with my boyfriend or girlfriend, that's ridiculous. Maybe you're stuck in verses 5 through 8. You might know that following scripture will be a blessing, but there's just something that you're holding on to. That you think, if I give this up, my life won't be happy. If I give this up, I won't be delighted and content. You might be thinking, I know that God's word is ideal, but I can't get past the holy cubit from head to heart. Or you might be stuck in verses 9 through 12 where all you see is your shortcomings. You want to follow God's law above all else in your life, but every time you fail, all you can help is but think, I am such a terrible person. I can't follow God's law. You're right. You cannot. And the solution to all three of these problems is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you have trouble seeing the Bible and the commands of Scripture as a blessing, Jesus died on the cross for you to take the veil off your eyes so that you might see the beauty of the Bible. If you have trouble desiring to do the, the commands, look at the gospel and see and savor that Jesus is our supreme delight. And it is in this beholding that we can now behave and live a life that Jesus commands. If you keep seeing your shortcomings, 
Look at the cross and you will find grace at the right hand of God because he will forgive your sin. All of us know that we do not reach perfection. So if you do not believe in Jesus, it is through repentance and belief that Jesus died for your sins that you might become right with God. So with that, we move to our next main point. Bible-saturated people are trusting in God's word. Turn with me to Psalm 119, 81 through 96. In verse 81, it says, My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have made almost an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day. For all things are your servants. And if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts. For by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me. For I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie and wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. So just like the beginning of the psalm, verses 81 through 96 also have several thematic connections between them. First, we see a longing for salvation and hope in God's word in verse 81. Verse 89 says something similar in that God's word is fixed in the heavens. And verse 94 states a request of salvation even stronger. Save me. Verse 86 is also a cry for help and salvation. And verse 83 states that the author has not forgotten God's statutes. And in verse 93, he says the same thing. I will not forget your precepts. Verse 88 talks about how the testimony of God's mouth and a request for life in verse and a request for life in verse 88. Verse 89 is about how God's word is fixed in the heavens. Lastly, verse 88 is a, verse 88 is a request to give life, while verse 93 says that God has given life. All these connections show that this is a thematically cohesive unit. Verses 81 through 84 primarily focus on a prayer for salvation from enemies. The author longs to have a rescue from these enemies, and we see that his eyes are fixed upon God's promises. We also have three questions. When will you comfort me, he says? How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? However, this author also says, I hope in your word. I have not forgotten your statutes. The lesson here is this. Despite the circumstances around you, 
we are still called to follow God's word completely. Despite what's going on around you, the Bible should be the absolute center foundation of your life. That's the message here this morning. We are to trust God's word and notice that he does not forget the verses he memorized back in verse 11. He sees all the confusion and pain around him, but his eyes long for his promise, and he says that he has not forgotten God's statutes. So in your life, in your experience, we often look around us at our problems instead of looking to God's promises in the Bible. We look around us in our circumstances and pray about those rather than focusing on the scriptures like the psalmist does. Do you love the Bible the way the psalmist loves the Bible? And more than that, we are in the new covenant. And we have greater promises because Christ is a greater high priest. And these promises are like his temple presence. Did you know God's temple presence dwells in you as a Christian? So every time you read in the Old Testament, I will not leave you or forsake you. God's presence literally dwells within you. How amazing is that? God also promises that one day we will spend eternity with him, gazing at his beauty forever and ever and worshiping him. Do you believe that this morning? And just like this man meditated on the promises of God, we too need to meditate on God's promises when trials and discouragements come to us. Verses 85 through 88 now focus primarily on the reason for needing salvation. We saw in verses 81 through 84 a prayer for salvation. Now why does he need salvation? He says that the insolent have dug pitfalls for him. The text says that he persecutes him, and it even moves to the point of almost killing him. However, look at verse 86. All your commandments are sure. Look at verse 87. I have not forsaken your precepts. Despite this, he trusts in God's word. And it seems to me that if he stopped following God's word, the persecution would stop. That's what I think is happening here. But despite that, he ignores what's around him and says, God's word is my focus. God's word is my life. God's word is my center. And so I have to ask once again, do you value the Bible the way this author values the Bible? Because he values it more than his own life. This portion closes in verse 88, and he prays that God would give him life so that he might continue to keep God's testimonies. Doesn't that sound odd? The reason he wants to continue living is so he can continue to follow God's law. That seems to me like a very countercultural way to want to live. Moving now to verses 89, we find a resolution to the question, on what basis can we trust God? How can we know that God is going to save us? How can we know that his word is true? And the answer the psalmist gives is to look around us. He says that God's word is trustworthy because we can know the power of God's word. And that's what these next verses are about. Knowing the power of God's word. God's word has the power to create the universe. 
God's word has power to establish the earth and hold it together. God has the power to sustain the universe, and we doubt him with our small little problems. If God's word can do that, how much more are God's promises sure and steady? Have you ever wondered why the Bible is so big? For me, I'm pretty dumb, and I need to hear God is faithful over and over and over again. The message of the Old Testament over and over and over again is God is faithful to his covenant promises where Israel is not faithful to the works of the covenant. God's promises are sure and we can trust in them above everything else in our lives. These verses remind us that God's word is sure. Verse 92 closes this section with a sobering word. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. God's word has to be our delight in order to be our salvation. Verses 93 through 96 then move from knowing the power of God's word to seeing the power of God's word in salvation. The precepts of God give life, seeking these precepts save, and even though the enemies fight and destroy this man, he centers his life around the scriptures. Look at verse 46. It teaches us to look all around us and see the imperfection of all the world versus the perfection of God's word. There's a limit to all perfection in the world around us, but reading the Bible shows us that it is perfect. Jim Hamilton comments on these verses when he says, there is nothing more right, more true, more applicable, more all-encompassing, he claims, than God's commandments. Do you value the Bible the way this author does? Now, typical of chiastic structures, the center of the chiasm is the main point and the most important point of emphasis. So this is the center, and if we're operating on that assumption, what is the most important point of this psalm? I think we are to see that God's word is fixed forever. God's word, God's promises are true forever. Despite what's going on in our lives, despite our troubles, despite our sins, despite our pain, despite our insecurities, despite our doubts, despite our fears, God's word is able to save. God's word is sure. God's word is faithful. God's word is eternal. God's word is trustworthy. And God's word is beautiful. God's word is amazing. And if we can catch this vision as a church, if we can see God's word in this way, how much more will Jesus be our supreme satisfaction in life? How much more will we see and savor the glory of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ? With that, we saw that Bible-saturated people find blessing in God's word in verses 1 through 16. We saw that Bible-saturated people are trusting in God's word in verses 81 through 96. And this brings us to our last main point. Bible-saturated people are exulting, not exalting, exulting in God's word. Turn with me to verses 161 through 176. Verse 161. 
princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day, I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. Verse 169. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord. And your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you. And let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. For I do not forget your commandments. This passage primarily focuses on praising God. The word exult means feeling and showing delight and adoration. Feeling and showing delight and adoration. When we read God's word, is it evident and clear that we love it? Do you find yourself praising God seven times a day simply just that he wrote the Bible down? Do you rejoice in the Bible in the same way as someone who finds a treasure? Do you love the Bible the way this author does? These last two sections of our psalm are also connected by several concepts. If you look at verse 162, it says we rejoice at God's word. And in verse 172, it says we sing of God's word. Second, verse 163, discuss loving God's law. And 174 is delighting in God's law. Third, verse 164 and 175, focus on praising God for his law. Fourth, You have stumbling and going astray, both in 165 and 176. Fifth, and lastly, there is hoping and longing for salvation in verses 166 and 174. All that to show, these two sections of the psalm are intimately connected. Now, we saw in the chiastic structure at the beginning that these verses that we just read correspond to the beginning of the psalm in verses 1 through 16. So we see that praise is a prominent theme in these verses. And 7, 164, 171, and 175 all deal with praising God for his word. Delight in God's word is used in verse 16, 162, 172, and 174. Verse 8 and 176 both talk about forsaking and going astray. Verse 12 and 171 both talk about God teaching us his law. Verse 14 and 162 talk about valuing the Bible as material wealth. And verse 2, 4, 5, 8, and 167 all use the word keep. That's why I think these two sections are intimately connected. 
Now, if we look at verses 161 through 164, this section primarily deals with praising God amidst persecution. It says in 161, princes persecute me without cause, but the follower of the Bible focuses on praise due to God. His heart stands in awe of God's words. He rejoices at God's words. He loves God's words. And he praises God for his righteous rules. And are you characterized as somebody who loves God's word so much that your life's challenges are secondary? That's something I need to pray over myself. But I want you to hear this morning. Are you characterized as someone who loves God and his word so much that your life is secondary? And your troubles are secondary. Praising God seven times a day is what the psalmist says. Now, I don't think it's a literal seven times, but it emphasizes completeness and intensity of praise. Remember in the Garden of Eden, God rested on the seventh day because his work was complete. And in the same way, this psalmist's praise is complete and intense for God's word. This is really counterculture to the way I think. I have to confess that I don't think of God's word as something more valuable and something that I need to think about more than my circumstances. But this psalmist shows us that instead of praying about our lives, let's focus more about praying for more knowledge of the scriptures. Despite his circumstances, he says he's living the high life. Living the high life is not a life without turmoil and strife, but it is a life of contentment and praise and peace in God's word. Jumping now to verses 165 through 168, these primarily focus on peace and hope for God's salvation. So we went from praising God amidst persecution now to peace and hope for God's salvation. He hopes in God's salvation from the prince's persecution. But instead of focusing on that, he focuses more on loving and keeping God's word above all else. And very typical of the Psalms, you start off with a lament, a cry for help, and it moves slowly towards praise. Even the whole book of Psalms starts off with more lament Psalms, and finally by the end, you have hallelujah, praise the Lord, over and over again. Despite these circumstances, this man has great peace upon him because he hopes in God and he knows that God's promises are sure and fixed forever. Moving now to verses 169 through 172. This section primarily focuses on prayer for God's help. Keeping track with the theme of the prince's persecution, there is more prayer and more petition for God's help. In verse 166, it simply says, I hope for your salvation. But now in our section, he says, let my cry come before you. Let me plea, or rather, let my plea come before you. Deliver me. I long for your salvation. So he's praying more and more fervently that God would save him. But this is not, the last section was good and this section is bad. Rather, we need to focus on the praise that is due to God. Even though the trials and the circumstances can get more intense and we feel like we need to pray about those more and more, what should dramatically increase as well is our praise due to God. 
That's what this psalm is about. We see a prayer for more understanding of God's word in this section. We see a praise of lips and songs of his mouth all throughout this section. And even in doubt, you and I can praise God. Even in doubt, we have his promises because our faith is not our, in our faith itself. Our faith is in the slain Jesus Christ and him resurrected on the third day. Even in the midst of difficult circumstances, we still have reason to praise God and trust God's promises. Now we close this sermon with verses 173 through 176. And it's a prayer that I want all of us to pray. It's a prayer to keep God's law. He prays that God would make him a better keeper of the Bible. And is that your prayer? Do you find yourself praying for God to change you to look more like Jesus? Do you find yourself in your Bible reading saying, God, make me like that. What I just read, I want to be like that. When you do your scripture reading, you should pray, God, help me to live this life like I read in the scriptures. But this author knows what you and I all are feeling right now. I can't do this. I can't do this. There's no way I can love the Bible the same way this guy does. There's no way I can follow all of these laws the way I know how. And he says in verse 176, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Doesn't that sound anticlimactic to you? All of this wonderful praise and exaltation for God's word, and he says, I've gone astray. As if to say, I can't even keep this either. Have you gone astray? Did you find yourself wandering into church after years and years of not coming? Do you feel like you don't really have a place in a religious group or community? Have you let sin in your life run so rampant to the point where you feel it's beyond the point of confession and beyond the point of forgiveness? I think Jesus in the Gospels is actually alluding to this verse in Matthew 18, 12 through 13. Please turn with me there. This is Matthew chapter 18, verses 12 through 13. Matthew 18, 12 through 13. He says, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. This psalmist would find hope in these words right here. Jesus is the good shepherd, and he seeks those who wander and lays down his life for sheep that wander away. We are the wanderers. We are ones that fall away, and we're going to sing a hymn in just a moment, or listen to one. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And if you are here this morning, and you do not know Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is seeking you. Jesus Christ is seeking you. He is a seeking Savior who lays down his life for his sheep. And all you must do is put your ultimate trust in Jesus' work 
on the cross and in his resurrection. If you are a Christian and you feel what I felt as I was prepping for this sermon, this overwhelming sense of guilt that I can't do this, I wander all the time, I sin every day, God's grace covers all of that sin. You might be feeling, I only read my Bible once this week. Jesus is still seeking you. So as we close, we got through a lot of intense weeds in this psalm. And at some point, it probably felt like you were drinking water out of a fire hose. And in this intense sections of study, it was good and helpful. But the danger here is to get caught up in the weeds and the analysis and the chiastic structures and all that and miss the author's goal. And I can't improve on the words of John D. Levinson. If the goal of the author was to create the psychic conditions conducive to the spiritual experience he seeks, then those commentators who wish the psalm were shorter have missed the point of it. Its idea can be communicated in a verse or two, indeed in any verse or two of the psalm of the 176. But merely knowing the theology is not equivalent to being in the state of mind in the state of mind that this author is trying to get us to. The state of mind that comes from reading it in a deliberate and reflective fashion. There are liturgies that exist that are best short, and others, like Psalm 119, work only if they're long. If you read this psalm, you would see the awesome literary structures and the content that can give you a wonderful doctrine of Scripture. But if you are not adopting this attitude of a love and delight in the Bible, then you've missed the point of Psalm 119. Psalm 119 exists to make you love the Bible. So, in light of that, I challenge you, at one time this week, try reading Psalm 119 in its entirety in one sitting. It takes about 15 minutes, so skip one episode of your favorite TV show, put down your favorite novel, put away Facebook, and read Psalm 119. I can guarantee you, you will not be disappointed because you will see and savor the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful that this psalm was written. I pray that in my own life and in the life of our church, we would be characterized as a people that love the book, that center our lives around the scriptures, that desire to follow it and keep it, that find it as the blessed life. So Lord, Help us, we pray. Lord, if there are some that aren't here this morning, rather that are here this morning and not a Christian, we ask that your word would pierce their heart, change it from the inside out, so they might love you and submit to your son, Jesus Christ. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Elder Scott is going to come up and lead.